Have you decided whether you are going to run for re-election in 2024? You haven't set up a re-election campaign yet, as your predecessor had by this time. <laughs> My predecessor need to, needed to. <laughs> My predecessor. Oh, God, I miss him. Oh, <laughs> oh me too. Me too. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't never I'm is. so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester, New York, on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us and welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast in his uh, first official formal press conference as president of the United States. Joe Biden on Thursday, uh, before moving to questions from the media at the White House, announced that his after his initial goal of 100 million covid vaccine shots in his first 100 days was easily met. By day 58, he's now doubling that goal to 200 million shots in the first 100 days, none of which apparently have been reserved for me. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, he also noted that 100 million Americans have received their $1,400 individual checks from his American Rescue Plan, with millions of more people getting them soon, and that the economic outlook he felt was encouraging following the passage of the American Rescue Plan, passed without one single Republican vote. As economic forecasters have since upped their predictions for the economy, suggesting that GDP is now expected to rise uh, more than 6% in coming months, which would be a big rise in the GDP. After his brief uh, opening remarks, 
Joe Biden took questions from about 10 different questioners on COVID, the economy, gun violence, immigration, children at the border, uh, which he spent a lot of time on. And I'm guessing that will get the most coverage today and tonight, even though, as new studies show, no, there is no unexpected surge of incoming migrants at the border so far under Joe Biden. The increase over the past month is expected for this time of year. And in fact, it's a surge that is smaller than the one uh, that uh, Donald Trump saw back in 2019 during the very same months uh, before the pandemic struck in 2020, which uh, changed all of the numbers. But in any event, Biden also spoke about relations with China in detail on infrastructure in detail, which, you know, I don't know if I'll have time to get to it today, but it was uh, very encouraging. I thought Desi Doyen, his conversation, the things he had to say about his uh, four, I guess, nearly four trillion dollar proposal that he'll speak more about on Friday. Correct. And of course, you know me, I'm all about being an infrastructure nerd. Oh, I know so you are. I was like, oh, this is good stuff. This is really good. He's, it was good. He knows what he's talking it about. It was good. Uh, he also spent- And he's saying it in complete sentences. What? He also uh, spent some time uh, answering questions on the need to reform the Senate filibuster. We'll get to that in a second. But it is remarkable after mostly Fox News has spent much of the last month or so asking why, why Joe Biden hasn't given his first press conference as president. What is he hiding? Is he okay? Is he even able to answer questions without having the words written out for him on a teleprompter? What is wrong with Joe Biden? And of course, it wasn't just Fox News. Uh, The rest of the uh, corporate media picked up on that as well, because whatever Fox News says, the other ones pick up on it as well. Even the non-wingnut news outlets. As usual... Apparently, they continue to underestimate Joe Biden. Frankly, I thought he not only did well, I thought he I thought he did great, uh, to be honest. And there was no appreciable Joe Biden gaffes that I noticed, as might be expected. Uh, In fact, he seems to be making fewer gaffes these days than when he was younger and not the president. I would agree with that. Uh, Others will uh, go over the detailed points uh, in his responses today and in the days ahead, I suspect. And uh, many of his answers, as noted, were very detailed, disappointing Fox News, no doubt. But I want to share just a few exchanges specifically on the filibuster and voting rights, which are sort of intertwined issues these days, because clearly... Unless the filibuster is somehow reformed or better yet killed entirely, there will be no response at the federal level to the assault on voting rights, which we are seeing from Republicans in dozens of states. As we've been discussing on the show, we discussed it in some detail on our previous broadcast with Marilyn Marks regarding some of the extraordinary attacks on democracy now taking place. Uh, or trying to take place uh, down in the GOP-dominated Georgia State House and Senate. Uh, So just to run through a few quick clips here on uh, some of those related points, Yamish Alcindor from PBS NewsHour asked whether uh, Joe Biden might consider supporting a rule to abolish the filibuster when it comes specifically to issues of democracy and civil rights. When it comes to the filibuster, which is what Zeke was asking about, there's immigration is, is a big issue, of course, with, when it related to the filibuster, but there's also Republicans who are passing bill after bill trying to restrict voting rights. Chuck Schumer is calling it an, an existential threat to democracy. Why not back a filibuster rule that at least gets around 
issues, including voting rights or immigration. Jim Clyburn, someone, of course, who you know very well, um, has backed the idea of a filibuster rule when it comes to civil rights and voting rights. With regard to the filibuster, I believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. Um, and that is that it used to be required for the filibuster, and I, I had a card on this. I was going to give you the statistics, but you probably know them. Uh, that it used to be that, uh, the, it, that well, from between 1917 and 1971, the filibuster existed. There were a total of 58 motions to break a filibuster that whole time. Last year alone, there were five times that many. So it's being abused in a gigantic way. And for example, it used to be you had to stand there and talk and talk and talk and talk until you collapsed. And guess what? People got tired of talking and tired of collapsing. Filibusters broke down and we were able to break the filibuster, get a quorum and vote. So I strongly support moving in that direction. In addition to having an open mind about dealing with certain things that are are just elemental to the functioning of our democracy, like the right to vote, like the basic right to vote. We've amended the filibuster in the past. But here's the deal. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. I want to get them done consistent with what we promised the American people. And in order to do that, in a 50-50 Senate, We've got to get to the place where I get 50 votes so that the Vice President of the United States can break the tie, or I get 51 votes without her. And so I'm going to say something outrageous. I have never been particularly poor at calculating how to get things done in the United States Senate. So the best way to get something done, if, you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to, anyway. I'm, we're going to get a lot done. And if we have to, if there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. So, of course, uh, Fox News, I think they'll latch on to the part where they'll uh, say Joe Biden thinks he was in the Senate 120 years ago. <laughs> Uh, in any event, uh, he supports, clearly supports now moving to the talking filibuster and and maybe more if things break down in, in chaos, you know, maybe more specifically for things that are fundamental for democracy, like the right to vote. And he is calculating how to get things done in the U.S. Senate and would go beyond uh, the uh, talking filibuster reform is how I hear it. Uh, you know, is that how you heard it, by the way, that he's willing to go farther potentially to abolishing it? Yeah, if need be for matters of democracy. That's the indication that I got was that, hey, listen, if they're going to block these things that are going to make it impossible for people to vote, then we will have to do something more. So that's good news. That's yeah. what I heard, too. He was later asked specifically by CBS's uh, Nancy Cordes about his concerns regarding those anti-democracy measures that are being adopted by Republicans around the country and the need to pass the For the People Act specifically in the Senate, which has already passed in the U.S. House in response to those efforts um, to effectively blunt them. Uh, he made clear that he takes those threats to democracy very seriously. 
Republican legislatures across the country are working to pass bills that would restrict voting, particularly Democrats fear impacting minority voters and young voters, the very people who helped to get you elected in November. Are you worried that if you don't manage to pass voting rights legislation, that your party is going to lose seats and possibly lose control of the House and the Senate in 2022. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. Deciding that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off work. Deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. It's all designed, and I'm going to spend my time doing three things. One, trying to figure out how to pass the legislation passed by the House, number one. Number two, educating the American public. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. Republican voters. The folks out in the outside this White House. I'm not talking about the, the elected officials. I'm talking about voters, voters. And so I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do. And it cannot be sustained and do everything in my power, along with my friends in the House and the Senate, to keep that from, uh, from becoming the law. Is there anything else you can do about it besides passing legislation? The answer is yes, but I'm not going to lay out a strategy in front of the whole world and you now. Hmm. The answer is yes. What's hmm. he referring to there? Uh, was he talking about uh, there again about the fil about filibuster reform or something else like a crackdown by the DOJ against some of these pernicious new restrictions that are being passed around the uh, around the uh, the country as uh, you know crackdowns as violations under the Voting Rights Act? I don't know. I hope so, but he sounds like he's very serious about it. And that, too, was a very good thing to hear. Finally, the filibuster came up yet again, this time uh, referred to as a relic of the Jim Crow era in this question from Caitlin Collins of CNN. Regarding the filibuster, at John Lewis's funeral, President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. If not, why not abolish it if it's a relic of the Jim Crow era? Successful electoral politics is the art of the possible. Let's figure out how we can get this done and move in the direction of significantly changing the abuse of even the filibuster rule first. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last 20 years. Let's deal with the abuse first. It sounds like you're moving closer to eliminating the filibuster. Is that correct? I answered your question. <laughs> okay, then. So, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell has vowed that there would be a nuclear winter if the filibuster was somehow changed or uh, maybe even just reformed in the U.S. Senate. Sure sounds to me like Democrats are preparing to 
call him out on that if something doesn't change in the U.S. Senate. Everything he said there uh, regarding the filibuster and and the, uh, you know, the attempt to uh, to to pass this voting rights law, the For the People Act. I'm encouraged by all of it. All in all, I think it is good news. And I will leave it up to Fox News to be furious about all of it, because I'm sure they will or otherwise come up with reasons to pretend that Biden didn't once again exceed the stupidly low expectations that they keep setting up for him over there. But there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, there's a whole lot of other news uh, going on today, including some very good progressive news, by the way, in the past 24 hours, separate from Biden's presser there. We'll try to get to as much of that as we can after a break here, including a bit later, Desi Doyen and the latest Green News Report. Yay! Yay. (laughs) Which is always, and by always, I mean never fun. So that's all (laughs) ahead on the Bradcast. Don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, I have been wrestling all week with a moral dilemma. Now, as you know, we do not endorse violence of any type around here. Of course. But this story from over the weekend has been challenging my thinking on that a little bit. (laughs) Okay. A Texas museum has removed its wax rendering of former President Donald Trump after it was mercilessly vandalized, according to the San Antonio Express News, the battered statue was recently pulled from public view and put in storage after it had been repeatedly punched, scratched, and beaten while on display at Louis Tussauds Waxworks in San Antonio, Texas, according to the paper. In Texas. So should I feel bad about this? Because people keep punching a wax statue of Donald Trump. You can see my dilemma here. It's sort of uh, enjoyable on one sense. In another, I I feel very bad about it, Des. Well, at least you feel bad about it. Uh, Regional manager of Ripley's Entertainment, uh, Clay Stewart, told the Express News that damage sustained to the Trump statue's face had been particularly severe. Adding that, quote, when it's a highly political figure, attacks can be a problem. A public relations manager for the museum's parent company told My San Antonio that Ripley's Entertainment has no political leanings and political figures from both parties have been sent for repairs. The uh, spokesperson said, we have a very open policy with our wax museums. We want them to be interactive. Visitors often like to touch the lifelike figures and are encouraged to pose for selfies. It's not uncommon for wax statues to be returned to a team of artists for touch-ups. A refurbished Trump statue may not return, however, to the museum, at least until it unveils a wax figure of President Joe Biden, according to the company. That statue is reportedly still under production in Orlando, Florida. So will I be so sanguine about punching uh, wax statues of 
presidents when they start punching Joe Biden? <laughs> that will be interesting to see. I have been troubled about this all week, I must say. And, uh, you know, I constantly try to check my biases on just about everything, as you know. Uh, so it is my own perpetual prison. Yet, uh, you know, I was going to talk about this on Monday and then my interview with Gov Governor Siegelman went long. So then I was going to discuss it on Tuesday. But we had the shooting in Boulder and the next day it just did not seem appropriate to make light of any kind of violence, even of wax statues. But then I uh, saw a story on COVID today that I will get to in a second that made me want to punch a wax statue of President Donald Trump all over again. Anyway, uh, you can drop me email via bradcast at bradblog.com to let me know how I should feel about a story like this and my dilemma. Uh, here's some uh, seemingly encouraging news, however, at least for now, breaking today. The number of people seeking unemployment benefits sharply fell last week to 684,000. Uh, that's still a lot, but the fewest since the pandemic erupted a year ago and a sign that the economy may finally be improving, according to AP. It's the first time that weekly applications, the very first time that applications for jobless aid have fallen below 700,000 since mid-March of last year. Before the pandemic tore through the economy, applications had never topped 700,000. Now, for the first time in a year, we're finally below what had been the all-time record since tracking these numbers. That is very good news, no matter how we got here. Even if 684,000 is still a huge number, very close to the, I believe it's 695,000. It was the all-time record prior to the pandemic. But it seems that things are finally, at least, finally moving in the right direction for now. For now, I'm underscoring the number of people seeking benefits under a new federal program for self-employment and contract workers also dropped. All told, the number of applicants fell below one million for the first time since the pandemic. The uh, Nancy Vanden Houten, an economist at Oxford uh, Economics, and I guess you have to have a name like Nancy Vanden Houten to get a job like that at Oxford Economics, <laughs> Uh, she said, while the level of claims remains elevated, we expect they will continue to recede as the recovery gains momentum. Still, a total of 18.9, uh, that's really 19 million people, are now continuing to collect jobless benefits. The economy has been showing signs of emerging from the pandemic crisis with renewed vigor, with spending picking up, manufacturing beginning to strengthen, and employers adding workers. Higher, uh, hiring increased uh, in February with 379,000 jobs added last month. That is more than double January's total. That could eventually result in a stronger jobs market in the months ahead, which is good for labor, which is good for labor unions as well, by the way. Some analysts are increasingly optimistic that hiring will accelerate very quickly this year. Two senior fellows at the Brookings Institution have forecast that employers will add a substantial 700,000 to 1 million jobs per month on average over the next 10 months at the higher end of that estimate. The uh, economy by year's end would have regained all of the nine and a half million jobs that remain lost to the pandemic. 
if they are right about that. There are still risks, however, that could frustrate such hopes. The number of daily new daily coronavirus infections has leveled off at least nationally, even as those numbers are beginning to rise again in more than a dozen states. Nonetheless, hospitalizations and deaths, uh, at least for now, continue to fall. And as many states have dropped or relaxed pandemic-related restrictions on gatherings and business activity in recent days, arguably prematurely, Another wave of infections could weigh on the economy as we move forward. I hope not, but that is a fear that I have, as well as uh, economists, as well as epidemiologists. Let's hope our fears are all for naught. Well, yeah, there is no economic recovery without controlling the virus, without controlling the spread of the pandemic. And so first off, building out this vaccine distribution system that the Biden administration has done, I think will go a long way to helping to curb any new wave if we're lucky and people pay attention and wear their masks. Our uh, concerns were definitely not for naught on on these points last year, uh, unfortunately, as a new study out today reported by Reuters makes tragically clear the U.S. squandered both money and lives in its response to the coronavirus pandemic, and it could have avoided nearly 400,000 deaths with a more effective health strategy. That's a nice way to put it. This is the uh, conclusion of a group of research papers released at a Brookings Institution conference this week, offering an early and broad start to what will likely be an intense effort in coming years to assess the response to the worst pandemic in a century. 400,000 lives could have been saved. You see why I want to punch a wax statue of Donald Trump today? U.S. COVID-19 fatalities could have stayed under 300,000 versus a death toll of 540,000 and still rising today if by last May, last May, and there was plenty of time, by the time we got to May of last year, Plenty of time to understand what was going on. If by then the country had adopted widespread mask Uh, Masking, social distancing and uh, testing protocols while awaiting a vaccine, we could have stayed under 300,000, according to Andrew Atkinson at the University of California, citing the um, UCLA specifically, citing the state by state patchwork response rather than a more uniform federal response. The result was that as the virus worsened, people hunkered down. But then when the situation improved, restrictions were dropped too early and people were less careful and the result was quote the equilibrium level of daily deaths remained in a relatively narrow band until the vaccines arrived atkinson projects that uh, a final final fatality level of around 670,000 Uh, Even as vaccines spread and the crisis subsides, 670,000. But that means we are still looking at uh, more than 100,000 deaths still to come at this point. Even with the vaccines being distributed more quickly. But folks are again dropping their guards too quickly along with it. That said, the um, 
Outcome uh, had no vaccine been developed. Well, that would have been far worse. Atkinson estimates it would have been at least 1.3 million. Still, I'm kind of stuck on this number that we could have avoided some 400,000 deaths. And I just can't imagine who should be blamed for that. There are also uh, papers on the economic response to the crisis and findings about where things uh, helped and where things could have been done better. But frankly, at this point, I'm most interested in what we will learn over the next year or so as the uh, progressive and massive $1.9 trillion COVID relief and stimulus package, the American Rescue Plan, by, passed by Joe Biden and the Democrats with zero support from even one Republican in either House of Congress. I'm interested in how that ends up changing the equation, not just for this crisis specifically, but as uh, Biden reiterated again today for the radical, radical agenda, frankly, radical in light of 40 years of Reaganism, the radical idea of rewarding work, not wealth. In these sorts of packages after 40 years when the opposite has basically been the case in this country, whether it's on tax cut packages by Republicans or even bipartisan stimulus plans when rescuing the economy becomes necessary because Republican administrations have screwed it up, which does sure seem to happen a lot, doesn't it? Just a coincidence, I'm sure. Just but, every single time. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a coincidence. So now, uh, as as longtime, very careful listeners of the broadcast may remember, way back in 2015, June of 2015, as the Supreme Court had just finally approved marriage equality at the time, Obergefell uh, to be the law of the land and, and a bunch of other progressive stuff was happening at both the federal and state levels back then. And the GOP presidential nomination looked like a disaster with dozens of folks in the clown car. And it looked like either Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, whoever won the nomination, was most likely going to be uh, headed to a cakewalk against Republicans in 2016. You might recall that I had suggested we were and uh, and I'm quoting me here at the dawn of a new progressive age. Remember that? Oh, yes. Now, little did we know that there would end up being a, a bump in that uh, age <laughs> by the name of Donald Trump. And of course, we are all still reeling from that. However, while I have always felt a little bit bad about, you know, talking about the dawn of a progressive era in the subsequent years during all of the Trump disasters and rollbacks to just about everything. Now that we are coming out of it, it feels more and more like that was a temporary aberration, that it was a setback, but that the nation is still ultimately only moving forward in the direction toward progress. Even if we have occasional setbacks or things move forward uh, less uh, less quickly than we would like, thanks to obstructionists who want to roll the clock backwards instead of forward. Uh, as I've been speaking here, for example, the uh, GOP-controlled Georgia Senate has now passed this sweeping bill to restrict voting access. As we discussed with Marilyn Marks uh, yesterday, Governor Kemp, the uh, CNN reports, will be signing it tonight. Mm. So maybe we'll see if uh, whatever Joe Biden was talking about, uh, the, the actions that he was considering taking, if in fact he could not get, get the uh, For the People Act 
passed in the U.S. Senate, which would blunt what's going on in Georgia and a bunch of other states. If he couldn't get that passed, he said he has other plans that he didn't want to talk about. Whatever those plans were, I guess we will find out. Hopefully it's the DOJ cracking down on some of this. I know there's going to be lawsuits. The thing hasn't even been signed in Georgia yet. Not sure what the final details are, but I suspect there will be lawsuits filed almost immediately. At least I hope there will. In any event, I I don't think these obstructionists ultimately who want to roll the clock backwards instead of forwards are going to succeed. I think that they will eventually lose, but they can certainly slow things down. Nonetheless, uh, we have some new reminders today that, yes, we will move forward no matter the efforts to hold progress back. Two quick stories of some new evidence on that front at the state level today. Virginia's Democratic governor, Ralph Northam, on Wednesday signed legislation abolishing the state's death penalty, following through on his promise to outlaw capital punishment in a state that has executed more prisoners in its long history than any other in the nation. At a ceremony at the Greensville Corrections Center, where the state houses its death row, the governor said the move would help reform an imperfect justice system. Justice and punishment are not always the same thing, he said. We can't give out the ultimate punishment without knowing we are always right. I'd suggest we can't give it out at all because it is always wrong. But hey, whatever it takes, Uh, Northam said uh, this government will no longer take a life. That is progress, especially in Virginia. Northam uh, added that the death penalty is disproportionately used against black people who accounted for 296 of the 377 inmates executed by the state in the 20th century. Almost 300 of the 377 killed over the in the 20th century were black. Now, how does that happen, you suppose? Virginia, which last carried out an execution in 2017, has conducted a total of 1,390, going back to uh, the early 1600s when it was a British colony. Texas, which became a U.S. state in 1846, is in second place. However, they lead by a wide margin since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. And as far as I know, Texas is not currently talking about abolishing the death penalty, though they should. They should, but they're not. But they will. They will. As I noted, when the uh, bill to abolish uh, the death penalty in Virginia was passed last month uh, following the uh, Democratic takeover uh, in in both chambers of the uh, Virginia legislature, Virginia becomes the first southern state to abolish this abhorrent practice. And it comes not a moment too soon, given the systemic racism inherent in the death penalty, but particularly in Virginia. As the Death Penalty Information Center points out, from 1900 to 1969, Virginia did not execute a single white person for any offense that did not result in death. That, while 73 black men were executed for things like rape and attempted rape and robbery. Robbery. So if you raped or robbed, but you were white, you would be spared. If you raped or robbed while black, you would be killed in Virginia. 
That is anything but equal justice under the law, and that practice now officially ends today in Virginia. So some good progressive news. 27 other states, along with the federal government, however, still have the death penalty according to the Death Penalty Information Center. So there is work to be done, but progress is being made now, even including in, yes, the South. Sarah Kraft, the Death Penalty Program Director with uh, Equal Justice USA, applauded the move in Virginia, saying this is the final action of a crushing blow against the death penalty, one of our nation's most visible and egregious responses to violence, she said. It is part of our country's reckoning with a deep and wide legacy of racial injustice. And coincidentally, perhaps incredibly, uh, Democrat Joe Biden took office as the first. This is uh, he's the first U.S. president. I didn't realize this to commit to seeking to abolish the federal death penalty. Hmm. I did not know that. So uh, that alone is progress as well. I will take it. I hope he is successful in that effort, especially after the last guy went on a killing spree before leaving office, uh, including clearing the way for the return of the gas chamber and firing squads and hangings. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that was, again, as I said, sort of a bump in the road. But we will see more progress today in New York, though. Apparently it took a series of scandals for New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo to get us there. That's OK. We'll take what we can get uh, as we move forward here. Moving forward is a good thing, in my opinion. Uh, New York state officials finalized a deal on Thursday to legalize recreational marijuana in the state, paving the way for the legalization of a potential $4.2 billion industry that could create tens of thousands of jobs and become one of the largest markets in the country. Well, what took you so long, New York? It is also, as New York uh, plans to carry it out anyway, another win for racial justice. Following several failed attempts, lawmakers in Albany were able to strike a deal with Governor Andrew Cuomo to legalize cannabis for adults, for all adults, 21 and older. A move that officials hope will help end years of racially disproportionate policing that saw black and Hispanic people arrested on low-level marijuana charges far more frequently than white people. Despite white people using the stuff at the very same or even higher levels than black or Hispanic people. Go figure. The deal would allow delivery of the drug and permit club-like lounges or consumption sites, as they call them, where marijuana but not alcohol could be consumed. That sounds like fun. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like Amsterdam. That does. Uh, this, uh, according to details obtained by The New York Times today, it would also allow a person to cultivate up to six marijuana plants at home, indoors or outdoors, for personal use. The deal was crafted with an intense focus on making amends in communities impacted by the decades-long war on drugs. Millions of dollars in tax revenue from cannabis sales would be reinvested in minority communities each year under the plan, and a sizable portion of business licenses would be reserved for minority business owners. 
Assemblywoman Crystal Peoples-Stokes, a Democrat who spearheaded the legalization effort in the lower chamber for years, said, quote, a percentage of revenue that is raised will get invested into the communities where the people who suffered mass incarceration come from and still live in many cases. She added, for me, this is a lot more than about raising revenue. However, it's about investing in the lives of the people that have been damaged. The governor, the governor's office had previously estimated that legalizing marijuana could generate about three hundred and fifty million dollars in yearly tax revenue once the program was fully implemented. With New York following the lead of more than a dozen states in legalizing recreational marijuana, Democratic lawmakers sought to fashion their proposal on the best practices from other states, hoping to make New York's program a national model. The final language of the legislation is still being reviewed as of Thursday, but a bill could pass the Democratic-controlled state legislature as soon as next week. State Senator Liz Krueger, a Democrat who led the negotiations in the upper chamber, said uh, that when the bill is finally voted on and signed, New York will be able to say we have finally undone damaging criminal justice laws that accomplished nothing but ruining people's lives. The years-long push to legalize recreational marijuana in New York received an unexpected boost from Cuomo's recent political scandals, according to the Times. Democrats began the year cautiously optimistic about reaching an agreement. New Jersey had just uh, recently legalized the drug, uh, putting pressure on New York to do the same. And the state is now in dire need of tax revenue after the pandemic, but the negotiations were thrown into question when multiple women began accusing Cuomo of sexual harassment in late February. That, along with scrutiny over the governor's handling of nursing homes during the pandemic, engulfed the administration in scandal, leaving the, his political future in balance. It turned out, however, that striking a deal to legalize cannabis somehow became a higher priority for Governor Cuomo. Why would that happen? Well, uh, several lawmakers and lobbyists surmised that the governor may have wanted to shift attention away from (laughs) his compounding crisis. Yep. Quick, create a distraction. Yes. Fine. Good. This is a good distraction. I'll take it. It's fine. Decriminalization is a fantastic good idea. If something good comes out of that mess, we'll take it. Uh, Nearly 60 percent of New Yorkers, uh, New York voters favor legalization of recreational marijuana. That, according to a Siena poll out this month, among black uh, black voters who are crucial to Cuomo's electoral base, 71 percent said they uh, support recreational pot. Veteran lobbyists and lawmakers long accustomed to Cuomo's strong arm negotiation uh, negotiating tactics said they were astonished by the torrent of concessions that the governor was suddenly willing to make to reach an agreement. Anyway, uh, Cuomo is, of course, a Democrat in his third term. He had long opposed legalization, ridiculously describing weed as a gateway drug just a few years ago. So wrong. So much for trusting the science, uh, Mr. Governor, there. Uh, His position, however, evolved in 2018 as neighboring states spearheaded similar efforts and, and this is important, when he faced a primary challenge from actress Cynthia Nixon, a progressive who made marijuana legalization a pillar of her campaign. So, yes, see, progressivism works. 
even when uh, progressive candidates do not actually win, but they help to push more conservative candidates and officials closer to progressive positions. So thank you, Cynthia. Thank you for your sacrifice. The uh, momentum apparently really accelerated when the Democratic Party regained full control of the state legislature in 2018 for the first time in a decade, and they vowed to uh, prioritize legalization. So it took a couple of years, a couple of years of bickering, but here we are. Progress happened. And in case you were wondering what the alternative is to progress and to progressivism, what the opposite looks like, well, we got that picture coming out of Georgia today, certainly. But in a lot of places, it looks like anti-democracy. It looks like rolling back rights. It looks like autocracy. As TPM's Tierney Sneed noted uh, last night, it's not just the Senate Republicans. Uh, it's not just that Senate Republicans think that S-1, that's the bill also known as the For the People's Act or H.R. 1, as it's now been passed in the House. It's not just that they think it's a poorly designed way to blunt the rush of these voter restrictions being advanced by Republicans in dozens of states. But as they indicated on Wednesday in a hearing on S-1, uh, this massive election reform legislation, Republicans don't even want to recognize that states are currently seeking to cut off ballot access at all. They are pretending that this is not even happening. We go, what rollbacks to voting rights? I don't know what you're talking about. Literally, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, made a rare appearance at this committee hearing on Wednesday saying states are not engaging in trying to suppress voters whatsoever. Also noting, these are not the droids you are looking for. I, I, I mean, even if you favor what is going on at the state level, how can you pretend that this is not happening? Well, that's Republicans have gotten very good at pretending things. They're late. very good at gaslighting. Their refusal to acknowledge that a historic wave of restrictive bills is moving through state houses shows why any federal voting rights legislation, let alone something as sweeping as S-1, will face virtually no chance of passage as long as the current filibuster rules are in place. There, there is, as Tierney Sneed notes, legitimate criticism uh, of the bill and to how some of the provisions are constructed. And on Wednesday, Republicans occasionally raised those concerns in order to bash the bill, but they were just as likely to mischaracterize the current dynamics around ballot access, where Donald Trump's lies about mass fraud in the 2020 election have propelled it, this nationwide push to make voting harder. Senator Roy Blunt, the top Republican on the uh, Senate Rules Committee, he's from Missouri, they were hosting the uh, Senate Rules Committee was hosting this hearing. He repeatedly made the claim that legislatures were not actually moving forward with, with bills deemed to be restrictive. Blunt said this is a false narrative. It is not happening. He did recognize that Arkansas had toughened up its voter ID requirement, but he did not acknowledge a recent Iowa law that shortens the number of days and hours for in-person voting. That makes the uh, made, made earlier the deadline for mail ballots. I think those have to be mailed, uh, unless I'm confusing it with what's going on in Arizona. I think those have to be mailed in Iowa, postmarked by the Thursday before the elections. 
other restrictions in the state uh, to prevent uh, local officials to actually make it a crime for them to help people to use mail voting. He also blunt ignored the fact that other states are on the cusp of passing a whole bunch of laws which erect new barriers to the ballot box, including Montana's legislature, which is one step away from ending ending same day registration. Why? Just because. And of course, Georgia's legislature, as Tierney Sneed reported last night, is preparing to ram through a sprawling overhaul of its election rules. The Senate has now voted, in fact, to do that. Uh, to add new limits on uh, Dropbox use, heightened ID requirements for mail voting among the provisions expected, well, that have now made it to final legislation. Nonetheless, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi, uh, she rushed to give her support to bans on Sunday voting, even though Chuck Schumer had pointed out that that had passed in Georgia. It, in fact, hadn't, as Marilyn Marks made clear, that was pulled back from the bill in Georgia. Nonetheless, Cindy Hyde-Smith went out to support the idea. Anyway, here was her reasoning for that. Senator Schumer's question was, he was wondering why on Sundays Georgia would not participate in an electoral process of gathering signatures of registration and things on Sunday, and I would just like to respond to that. Georgia is a southern state just like Mississippi. I cannot speak for Georgia, but I can speak for Mississippi on why we would never do that on a Sunday or hold an election on a Sunday. (laughs) You know, this is our currency. This is a dollar bill. This says the United States of America, in God we trust, etched in stone in the U.S. Senate chamber is in God we trust. When you swore in all of these witnesses, the last thing you said to them in your instructions was, so help you God. In God's word in Exodus 20:18, it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So that is my response to Senator Schumer. Jesus. No voting on Sundays because Jesus. Yep. By the way, I'm Jewish. Our Sabbath is on Saturday. I guess we should have no voting on Saturday either. Not that I want to give them any more ideas. <laughs> Last I checked, we didn't take our, uh, our our advice for laws based on the Bible. We don't have a theocracy here, although Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith of uh, Mississippi may prefer that, apparently, to people voting. I will stick with Raphael Warnock, the new U.S. senator from Georgia, who said that voting is a holy act I agree, and if it needs to be done on Sunday, I'm just fine with that. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, uh, Desi Doyen, I know we're running uh, late here, but yes, very quickly, two, two breaking headlines that I think are important. Uh, Texas officials have raised the death toll of uh, the February storm and the blackouts to at least 111 people, mm. nearly doubling the initial tally there in Texas. 
and some much better news out here for us, at least in California. Uh, California will open up vaccine eligibility on April 1 to residents 50 years of age or older. And will expand uh, that will expand to those 16 or older just two weeks later on April 15. Well, that is good news. That's much better news. Now let's ruin it all with Desi <laughs> Doyen and her latest Green News report. It's not really recyclable. And that means that it ends up in landfills or burnt or in the ocean where it breaks down into microplastics, gets eaten by fish and can end up inside us. Plastic pollution increasingly found in oceans, farm soils and the food chain. The fossil fuel industry receives more than 60 billion a year in indirect federal subsidies, study finds. Oil firms knew decades ago fossil fuels caused deadly air pollution and then lied about it. Plus, one tanker mishap causes global oil price spike. All of those mishaps and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The reason I am so happy is that science is back. Yay, science is back. Come for the bad jokes, stay for the good science. This is your Green News Report. Okie dokie, speaking of good science, hello Desi Doyen. Hey! We start off today with a worldwide oil price spike because of one lousy ship, really? <laughs> yes, global okay. oil prices spiked temporarily after a massive container ship ran aground in the Suez Canal in the Middle East on Wednesday, halting all traffic in one of the world's busiest waterways. It's your daily reminder that solar and wind energy cannot be disrupted by a single poorly navigated ship halfway across the world. Yeah, but it can be disrupted by nightfall. That's what batteries are for. Oh, good point. See? Good science. Meanwhile, a new study has estimated just how much the U.S. fossil fuel industry receives in government subsidies. Now, direct subsidies, like tax breaks, are estimated to be up to about $50 billion a year. But researchers at Yale University estimate that indirect subsidies are far higher and allow fossil fuel companies to offload onto society the full, true costs of their products. Costs like pollution public health damages, and climate change, known as externalities. Between 2010 and 2018, the study estimates the value of these indirect, implicit subsidies to the U.S. fossil fuel industry averaged about $62 billion every year. Really? And yet we're just so broke, apparently, according to Republicans, that they can't afford to give any money to the solar and wind industry. The Guardian reports that a new treasure trove of internal documents shows that oil companies knew decades ago that burning their product caused deadly, toxic air pollution. Of course, what do you think we give them all that money for? But like the tobacco industry, the documents show oil companies spent millions to generate uncertainty about the effects of their toxic air pollution, denying the fact that their products posed grave risks to public health, and spent millions lobbying to block clean air rules. Huh, I wonder where they got all that money. But as the world begins to shift away from fossil fuels, the oil and gas industry is pushing to flood the world with more plastic. 
projects made from oil and gas in order to maintain their profits. And that would increase plastic pollution. A series of alarming studies reveal that plastic pollution is entering the food chain. UC Santa Barbara scientist Roland Geyer explains in an interview with CBS. Plastic in the ocean has a tendency to break down into ever smaller pieces. And these tiny pieces then get taken up even lower down in the food chain. So we know that um, it ends up on our dinner plates. There is plastic in your food, plastic in your sea salt, and there is plastic coming out of your tap. Delicious. And it's not just entering and rising up the ocean food chain. A new study has concluded that teeny tiny microplastics are even contaminating agricultural soils on land. The researchers were surprised to find that tiny plastic particles were small enough to pass through the physical barriers of intact plant tissue, negatively impacting plant development and could be ending up in produce and people. They estimate that more microplastics are contaminating farm soils than oceans. In the U.S., Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon introduced the Comprehensive Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act to reduce plastic pollution and address the entire life cycle of plastics. The bill also prioritizes environmental justice because most plastic manufacturing plants are, surprise, located in communities of color, like a massive new plastic plant now being proposed in a primarily black community in Louisiana known as Cancer Alley because of the high incidence of cancer. HBO's John Oliver did an epic report on plastic pollution in his show last week tonight, exposing how the plastic packaging industry and the oil industry lobbied to put the burden on consumers to dispose of plastic waste rather than the producers of plastic waste. But it turns out that the vast majority of plastic packaging cannot be recycled. We'll link to that video at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. Plastic pollution is another way that the oil industry is trying to force consumers consumers, governments, and taxpayers to bear the oil industry's burden of the waste and pollution they generate, effectively another subsidy for the fossil fuel industry. Nice work if you can get it. Indeed. For much more on that story and all of the other things we couldn't cover today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Nice work if you can get it. And you can get it if you try. Yeah, nice work, Desi Doyan. Thank you. Tying all of that together. Oil's got to do something if uh, they can't sell the oil as is. And wait Make for that the... plastic pollution scourge even oh, worse. Oh, yes, here comes a wave, a tsunami of plastic. Anyway, thank you very much. Well done, Desi Doyan, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. It's always an honor. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, or you want to share it with your friends or your family or your enemies, you can drop by <laughs> bradblog.com and download it for free there. All of this made possible by uh, those of you generous listeners, thank you, who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to support what we do, try to do, every day on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That's it. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Nice work if you can get it. And if you get it, whoa.